James says, without any shadow of variance. God doesn't change. He's not a changeable being. God never learned or got counsel from anyone before him. That's the next point. Isaiah chapter 40 uh, and then Romans 11 basically say the same thing, that God was not directed by somebody else or who has been God's counselor. Everything that exists comes from God. Next. God never depended on things outside of himself in order to become a God since he is the sole creator of literally everything else. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, uh, 1 through 3, uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there was nothing that was made that was made except it was by the Word, who we find out in verse 14, was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what Romans 9.5 says, referring to this, this being, Jesus, the Word. He is God over all, blessed forever. Colossians 1, uh, 16-17. I think it's actually, I got this verse... Try it back up to 13 through 18. For by the Son, all things were created, whether they be in heaven or on earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Ask the Mormon, where were you created? What do you mean? My parents. No, before that, you believe in a pre-mortal life, right? Well, yeah, the heavenly parents. Well, according to this passage here, if you were in heaven, you were created there by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Very troubling for Mormons because Jesus is supposed to be their elder brother in the pre-earth life, remember? Okay, next. God knows of no other being responsible for literally everything else. Psalms 96 verse 5 says that uh, there are gods, um, for all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Isaiah 43 verse 10, now you can say it. Yeah, this is is probably my favorite (laughs) verse when witnessing to Mormons because it says, basically, before me no gods were formed, neither shall there be after me. So when you take a Mormon there, um, the missionaries kind of try to skirt around it and yeah. say, oh, that's for this we'll world. Get to that. But for the most part, um, if you're just going to get an average Mormon, that kind of, they, okay, they, it's like they've never read it in that context before. Yeah, these Isaiah passages with the other uh, Isaiah 40 passage, read these all to them in, in one, con- to, get, to get the full context here. So you can see that God is the only God. He knows of no other being. Ver, uh, chapter 44, 6 says, Thus saith the, uh, uh, the Lord is the first and the last. Besides him there is no God. Verse 8, Is there a God besides me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. And then verse 24 here says that the Lord 
is the one who stretched forth the heavens alone, who spread abroad the earth by himself. Now remember what I said to you about the book of Abraham, chapters 4 and 5, that, said, that has a different creation account. The gods got together and laid out the heavens and the earth. The gods ordered the expanse. The gods, the gods. How can that be when the book of Isaiah is very clear and has all sorts of good manuscript testimony to it that God laid out the heavens and the earth alone, by himself. And then Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, verse 3, here is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, right? and Jesus Christ who now sent. Now, what is the LDS to do here? LDS response. Well, we have such thing as progressive revelation. As a matter of fact, some of those passages that you quote are also in our other scriptures. The Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. We know that. But see, we have more than just that. So taking it all together in this uh, context of revelation, we see that there's another way of looking at these verses. Thus, uh, for us, there is only one God. So, uh, prior to God doing any creation, he could have very well progressed to becoming a God. And then once he became a God, he is the only God for us, and he doesn't know of any other God. Okay, do you understand the law? I mean, I'm not asking you to agree with it. I'm just asking you follow the logic here of what they're saying. Okay, they're saying that God is the only God for us. So, as a result here, you have monotheism relativized. What does that mean? Mono, one, theism, belief in God. Uh, there's only one God relative to this world. But not all worlds whatsoever, because those other worlds are ruled over by other gods. Okay? That's the Mormon argument here. Well, Christians have a response to this. <laughs> Mormons don't like this. They don't like being referred to as polytheists. But monotheism relativized is just, hey, let's call it what it is. It's just polytheism. It's the belief in more than one God. Okay? Whether that God is in some other world way out where uh, a father of the father God, it's still a belief in the existence of another God. Okay? There is no hint of this LDS interpretation in the Bible. You're not going to get it out of the Bible. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you can get the Incarnation and the Trinity, there's hints of it in the Old Testament, right? But you don't have hints of God becoming a God and having to need all this stuff before he can become a God anywhere in the Bible. That's a problem. Further, there's another problem, is no one throughout church history has even hinted at this, whether the apostles, whether the patristics, the early church fathers, the medievals, uh, the leaders of the Reformation, nobody has taught 
Mormon doctrine here. And this is where Mormons say, well, they're just in the dark ages. It went into apostasy. And so you just have to pray about it, get this good feeling, and you know that we're really telling you the truth. Uh, okay, well, I, I don't buy it. All right, LDS, you, if, you want to, if you want me to really join the Mormon church, you're going to have to do better than that. You have the burden of proof. Now, here's another thing that you can say. In these Isaiah passages that we talked about, who is the God that is spoken here anyway? The God that's the only one for us. Well, the Mormon's going to say, well, that's our Heavenly Father, right? He's the God that we worship. Um, But there's a problem here. The problem is that Jehovah is speaking here. You know, in, in the uh, King James, at least, you have in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that tips you off to this is referring to Jehovah. Now, Jehovah for Mormons is who? And Jehovah is Jesus. Okay? Jesus, Mormons say, is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus this is where Mormons talk about the divine investiture of authority. What that means is, is that Jesus became the Father's executor of his estate, so that Jesus was acting in the place of the Father. And so Jesus is the one who is actually the God of the Old Testament who is speaking here. Um, okay, well, if that's the case, then why doesn't Jesus know of these other gods that we're helping out is Abraham chapters 4 and 5 say. Right? The gods helped each other out in laying out the heavens and the earth. Why doesn't Jehovah in these Isaiah passages know about these other gods? Because remember Jehovah says, I am the first, I am the last besides me. There is no God. I know not any. It doesn't seem to, to fit. Now this is where Mormons go to, well... It must mean that there's only one Godhead. Yeah, that's it. It's not the Father. Mm, I guess it can't be Jesus. So, yeah, it's got to be the Godhead. Now, what is the Godhead? Remember? Yes, three separate gods acting as one. Okay? They function as one. So Jesus is really saying in these Isaiah passages, uh, besides us, there is no other Godhead. <laughs> okay? I mean, I'm, not, I'm not making this stuff up. This is really how Mormons are thinking. I'm trying to walk you through their thinking process here. Okay? But look, um, besides us, there is no other God, it, Godhead? It, is this really what uh, the passage... I, I, don't, I don't think so. It, does, it doesn't seem to fit. Uh, the Godhead is a team. It's, it's not a being. Do you, you get that? There's a difference between a team and a being. Now, is a team speaking in these Isaiah passages? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. A being 
is speaking in, in, this, in, in these Isaiah passages. Um, even, even the doctrine in covenants rips off um, one of the Christian creeds, which they say all their, and remember Joseph Smith's first vision, when he says all their creeds are an abomination. <laughs> in doctrine and covenants, they use a creed in which it specifically says that God is the only being. Well, if God's the only being, what about all these other gods? You see, this, this is a huge problem here. So I don't think the Mormons have, can make their case from the Bible that there's only one God for us, but there are other gods out there for other worlds. You see the problems with that. I just don't think it fits. Now, there's also another problem, and that's a philosophical problem. There are other philosophical problems. For any of you guys that are bent on philosophy, I'd recommend a very scholarly book that was put out about six years ago now called The New Mormon Challenge. And uh, it's a Zondervan book that got together a bunch of good evangelical thinkers to just take on all the apologetics of Mormonism, all the defenses of Mormonism, I'd highly recommend that book. Let me give you one philosophical challenge to Mormonism. There are other ones that you can check out in in that book. But this is basically the argument from the concept of God. And I think this is a pretty simple philosophical argument, so I'm just going to use this on you. Let's start out with this first premise. Um, let me do this. You see this? Oh my gosh. Thanks. I didn't know that was in there. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I do have a point to my madness here. Uh, this is on our, our cruise that we took, and uh, you know, some of you guys have taken cruises before. They make these little bunnies out of towels, right? Now, um, this can be an idol. You see that? This can be a god for some people. Some people might bow down to this every day and pray to it. But this God isn't as great. This, this bunny God here isn't as great as a living bunny God. You understand that? A living bunny God is far better than this towel. <laughs> Just hang with me here, okay? I, I, I'm going somewhere with this. Now, uh, a, a, a live bunny God is, is not as great as uh, this cute bunny god here. You see what I'm saying? This is far greater than uh, that other bunny god. Okay? Some people might be tempted to make this uh, god. You know what I'm saying? Okay? Now, um, now this, this cute god here uh, is not as great as a god uh, as, well, as a god who is the God for the whole world. Hmm? Right? Uh, and any God whatsoever in this world, or all the gods that make up gods in this world, aren't as great as the God of this world. Do you see that? Because the God of this world is the one who rules over all these gods. Okay? But the God of this world isn't as great as the God of this world plus one. Okay? 
But the God of this world plus one, another world that he rules over, is not as great as a God of this world plus two worlds. And so on and so on ad infinitum. But look, a God who is a God of literally all worlds huh, is greater than any of these other gods. And this is the God of traditional Christianity. A God who is a God over literally all worlds. Thus, the LDS God, the Mormon God, is not as great. He's not as great as the God of the Christian God. Do you understand that? Anything less than great is, is not really God. Great in the sense that he is the one that by whom everything else exists by. Hmm? Any being who is really God in this sense must have always been God. This is quite different from the Mormon God. All right. Trinity. We've got about eight minutes and we'll wrap it up here. Yeah. In Mormonism, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. That's what we were saying earlier. It's like a pyramid scheme. Pyramid scheme. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'll recruit you to my temple and my planet. And Yeah, interesting. Okay, the Trinity. All right, having this as a background, you need to set this as a background for there being only one God who rules over it all. Okay? With this as a background, then we read through Scripture that the Father is called God, First Peter in numerous places, but obviously nobody has a problem with this. Of course the Father is God, First Peter 1-2. Secondly, the Son is called God by the Father in Hebrews chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through 10. Very important passage where God himself says, Thy throne, when he says to the Son, when he brings forth, the only begotten into the world, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. God is calling his son God. But yet there's only one God. You see that? Okay? The Holy Ghost is called God in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. When, uh, when uh, Ananias and Sapphira lie to um, men. uh, Peter says to them, you have not lied to men. Uh, it, It says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, you have lied to God. So the implication is, is that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is God. You can lie to God, who is the Holy Ghost. Now there is a distinction of persons, as we've cited in the, in the Hebrews 1 passage, where one being, God, one personage, rather, says to the other, Thy throne, O God, he's obviously referring to someone else. So the Father is distinct from the Son. Okay? Uh, you have the baptism of Jesus, 
where you have the Father's voice out of heaven saying, this is my beloved Son who is being baptized and the Holy Ghost descending in the bodily form of a dove, you have what seems to be different persons here, right? Here, uh, here is a distinction. And, and then uh, Mormons like to bring this up too, to Christians. Well, who, what was going on in the baptism? Or who was Jesus praying to? Uh, was he praying to himself? That doesn't make any sense. And I want to say to the Mormon, well, of course not. He was praying to his father because I don't believe that Jesus is the father. Okay? I believe that my God exists in different, distinct persons. All right. They are inseparable. John 1, again, uh, says, in the beginning was the word. In the very beginning, Christians take that to be a literal beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 identifies the Word as Jesus Christ. So there is inseparability and a distinction of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Finally, uh, salvation. Romans 4, 5. To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Joseph Smith had a big time problem with that verse, and so you know what he did? He changed it in his inspired version to say that God justifies not the ungodly. In other words, you need to godly yourself up. That's why uh, some people I think have asked about the works, why, you know, Mormons are such good people and they do all these works because they believe that works are essential for salvation. That's right. Um, So they really, they really, really focus on that and they do a lot of good works. So um, it kind of trips people up because they're like, oh, they must be Christian. They do all these great works. Mm -hmm. But their motivation, you guys know now, you've been inoculated. It's for Godhood. Okay. Not because they're honoring God by their actions, it's because they want to become a God. Yeah. And remember the video we saw? How does that affect your worship? Oh, well, me, you know, it's all about me. It, it's, it's empowering for me. It's a good example for me to go on and become a God myself. Is God, okay. Romans 4, 5, Joseph Smith changed that. But the problem is, is that his change isn't found in any New Testament manuscript anywhere. And we've got thousands of manuscripts, you guys, from different periods of time. We also have lectionaries. Uh, we also have, lectionaries are the prayer books that, that were uh, brought about in the early, uh, early centuries of, of the Christian church. The, the church fathers never cited Romans 4-5 as Joseph Smith has, has cited it in his inspired translation. Joseph Smith just got it wrong. Okay? He doesn't, he's making this up. Next, Romans 11, uh, 11.6. If it is by grace, it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. And we find out that in Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. Otherwise, you're going to boast about it. But in verse 10, he goes on to say that we are his workmanship. We're created in Jesus Christ unto good works. And that is the point of James chapter 2. 
when James says, faith without works is dead. Right? And you see that a man is justified not only by faith, but by works. That justification that is talked about there in James is different from the justification that Paul talks about. The justification that Paul talks about is being made right before God as an act of faith alone. That, in Ephesians 2.10, transforms the person so that the person wants to go out and share his good works with the rest of mankind and go on so that they might glorify their Father who is in heaven, as Jesus talked about. So that justification in James there is a justification of showing. You'll see in, in James 2, he, he, goes on to, he, he talks about earlier how, how uh, you can this type of faith that uh, treats people with partiality, can that type of faith save one? He goes, now you see that a man is justified by faith and works. So the emphasis is on, when it talks about justification there in James, I think it's better, I think it's better understood as being a justification in terms of vindication. Okay? Not of being made right before God. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Okay. So uh, I think it was John Calvin who put it this way, faith without works is dead, but faith alone, being by itself, still saves. So um, if it's genuine faith. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just about done here. 1 John 5, uh, 10 through 13. This is the record that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that has life, he that has the Son has this life. He that doesn't have the Son of God doesn't have this life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. Mormons don't know it. They don't, if you ask them, if you were to die right now, you know if you'd go and be in the presence of the Father? Oh, jeez, I hope so. I don't know. You know? Or they'll say, I, yeah, I think I've done enough good work. Yeah, I've Let's done enough. Well, how much is enough? What do you need to do? Well, have you done anything bad today? Uh, John says earlier in chapter 1, uh, if you say that we're without sin, you're a liar. There's, we always are dealing with sin. But yet we can know that we have eternal life. This is the peace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans says. So this is why the Christian has perfect peace with God. If they were to die, they'd be in the presence of God, the presence of Christ, where Christ is, God is. Be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the Apostle Paul says. So in conclusion, Mormonism is not genuine Christianity. I hope that has been obvious to you. I've tried my best to make that as clear as possible to you, that Mormonism is not genuine Christianity, even if they want to call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They have a different Father, a different Jesus, a different Holy Spirit, they have different scriptures, and they have different prophets. I want to encourage you with a verse from the book of Jude. Jude says, to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
Paul said this in Galatians 6, 9. He says, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Your friend, you need to keep at him. Okay? Your Mormon friends, you need to keep at him. And don't give up because God will honor your efforts and he will save some of them. And we'll be able to spend eternity with them because God will save them. But he wants to use us. So don't, I know, look, I know it's very difficult, this stuff, in, in trying to communicate with your Mormon friends and family. I remember when I first went up as like 16 years old, uh, uh, the second year actually, and running into this lady who um, invited her bishop to come over while I was showing this family the Godmakers video when the Godmakers had just come out. It was a Mormon, a film against Mormonism. Well, she went in the kitchen or somebody and called the, her bishop up. The bishop came over during the movie, and then after the movie, that guy proceeded to just rip me apart. Well, ooh, it was... I mean, it was so bad, the gal that I was with left in tears. And the lady of the house came up to me and said, thank you so much, shook my hand and said, thank you so much for strengthening my testimony. And I just felt like, just what could I do except throw up on her? You know, I just felt so bad. But look, I'm telling you this. I, I went back after getting knocked down. I picked myself up and I said, Laura, I'm going to trust you to make me into a good evangelist for these Mormon people. And I know it's a lot of hard work, but I love these people and I want to see them saved someday. And I stayed with it. And now I married the next Mormon. <laughs> now I'm moving to Utah. Go back up there and spend life up there and try to convert the whole state. And I want to give you guys that same motivation as well. I want you to be passionate and not give up. And I want you to stay after these people and continue and write us. And our, you get our email on back our got my card on back of this DVD. Uh, or go to one of our websites and send us emails. If you have problems with your Mormon family or friends, send us an email and let us know how we can help you. Because we want to see more of these people come to know the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Oh, real quick, the cheat sheet that you guys got, this is cheat sheet, um, that's really good when witnessing. Um, if you go through and read all those, read the verses, especially if you have a topic that you're trying to discuss with your Mormon friend or neighbor or coworker, um, and read that and it will, it will help you clearly communicate that topic to them. Okay, let's question? pray. Is there a question? Yes. It's called the New Mormon Challenge. It's uh, very technical. Um, if, if you're geared toward philosophy, then I'd highly recommend it. If you want more of an introductory book, I would recommend Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson's book, Mormonism 101, is a good starter. Uh, my former director, Kurt Van Gordon, has a book in the Zondervan series on the cults just called Mormonism. And you can read it online, actually. I just saw it today, as a matter of fact. It's online. You can read it. A lot of good stuff out there. Uh, and the DVD is great, too. Yeah, the it's DVD is watch. very, very watch. helpful. Yeah. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much for these guys. Thank you for their willingness to hang in there through a very difficult subject. And I pray that you might give them your spirit, that they might take what they have learned here today, that they might be able to go and share this stuff to their Mormon family and friends, and that they might see many of them come to know you and trust you as the only true God. And God, 
we know that you love them. Jesus, we know that you died for them. And we pray that you might give us that passion for these people that are lost. We pray that we might take all the hits and go through all the trials that we might be able to see these guys in heaven with us someday. So thank you for this time. And, uh, and protect us as we go and use us for your honor and glory. We love you. Thank you for giving us life and help us not to be stingy with it, to give it to others. In your name we pray. Amen.